Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Russia and Ukraine holding their fourth round of talks. Both sides saying they are making progress even as fierce fighting continues. 35 people were killed when dozens of Russian cruise missiles pounded a base in western Ukraine. Our NTD correspondent is on the ground in Ukraine with an update of the aftermath. Ukraine is calling out a Chinese credit company. The country wants China's union pay to align with global sanctions by suspending services in Russia. This while the U.S. warns China that it could face economic penalties if it helps Russia in its invasion of Ukraine. Australia and the Netherlands begin joint action against Russia for the downing of a Malaysia Airlines flight in 2014. The passenger jet was shot down over a rebel-held area of Ukraine. Today could be the day or not. Russia and Ukraine started their fourth round of talks. Both sides reported rare progress over the weekend, even as bombings continue. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. Russia and Ukraine started a fourth round of talks Monday, this time remotely. Before the talks, one of Ukraine's negotiators said Ukraine's position remains the same. It's peace, immediate ceasefire, withdrawal of all Russian troops, and only then can we talk about neighboring relations and a political settlement. Ukraine's deputy prime minister said Ukraine will try to evacuate civilians through 10 humanitarian corridors Monday. The two sides had previously agreed to set up humanitarian corridors in several areas, although they accused each other of firing on people. On Sunday, negotiators on both sides said they're making progress, with results possible in the coming dates, but they didn't give any details. U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman told Fox News Sunday that the United States is putting, quote, enormous pressure on Russian President Vladimir Putin to agree to a ceasefire. That pressure is beginning to have some effect. We are seeing some signs of a willingness to have real serious negotiations. But I have to say, so far, it appears that Vladimir Putin is intent on destroying Ukraine. Sherman didn't elaborate on hints Moscow may have provided about talks. Meanwhile, a blast hit central Kyiv Monday, destroying buildings and vehicles. And at least one person was killed Monday morning when a shell hit a residential building in the capital, according to Ukrainian TV. Firefighters climbed through the rubble in search of survivors and to try to salvage belongings. One resident said when he and his mother tried to get out, they saw that the staircase was gone. We managed to put on whatever clothes we had at hand and made our way from balcony to balcony, and in the end, we climbed down by the next building's entrance. Now we are trying to retrieve some of our things with the help of the firemen. And multiple casualties were reported Monday in eastern Ukraine, where a missile hit the rebel de facto capital in Donetsk. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. 35 people were killed when Russian cruise missiles pounded a military facility in western Ukraine. That's according to Ukrainian officials. NTD's Dan Skorbak and Epic Times' Ivan Penchikov spoke to military personnel and residents in the area of the attack. Here's what they found out. Today we are less than 10 miles from the training facility that was bombed by the Russian forces. The latest official figures are that 35 men were killed and 134 others were wounded in the attack. 
We also talked to a few military personnel who were there on the ground when the attacks hit. They, when, they said when they ran out of the barracks uh, after the first hit, uh, all the debris started hitting them, f uh, flying from the air uh, and falling onto them. Uh, they came over in a car that was um, very beat up, but they said uh, everything else was damaged in, in much, much, uh, on a much greater scale. Uh, yes, and the the men who we spoke to, who, who trained at the facility, um, told us that after the attack, uh, in the aftermath, uh, they were um, rounded up and told that those who those volunteers who want to stay and continue on can stay, and th those who want to go can go. Uh, he said that many wanted to stay, uh, and and many wanted to go. He doesn't have an exact number. He was one of those who decided to to go back uh, to the country where he came from. He said that he didn't have any uh, formal military training uh, prior to this, that he was scared and shocked by the reality of war. He was not prepared for this and slightly dispirited uh, uh, because amid the war, not surprisingly, uh, things at the facility were, were a bit disorganized and he feels like uh, that they were just sitting there and not getting the training uh, that they need. This is Dan Skorbak for NTD and Ivan Penchukov with the Epoch Times reporting from Yavariv, Ukraine. On the beaches of Odessa today, dozens of people shoveled sand into bags to bolster the city's defenses. This as Russian forces creep slowly closer to the strategic city. Occasionally bursting into song, citizens from all walks of life, from photographers to choreographers and comedians, helped pack the bags. Organizers say the effort has been underway since February 27th. They estimate that 400,000 bags of sand have been filled so far. The mayor of Odessa warned that Russian forces could soon surround his southern Ukrainian port city on three fronts. The mayor suggested that Russian forces would seek to advance from territories they have occupied in Ukraine's Mykolaiv region towards Madolva's separatist-controlled region. This is where Russian troops are based. Such a move could cut Odessa off from the rest of Ukraine. An award-winning American journalist was shot dead in Ukraine on Sunday. The shooting occurred while he was reporting from a suburb of Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital. Another journalist was wounded. Here are the details. Police in Kyiv say Russian troops shot and killed an American journalist in the town of Irpin in the Kyiv area. Another journalist was wounded. Juan Arredondo recounted the shooting from his stretcher. We crossed one, the first bridge in Irpin. We're going to film other refugees leaving. Mm -hmm. And we got into a car. Somebody offered to take us to the other bridge. And we crossed a checkpoint and they start shooting at us. Um, so the driver turned around and they kept shooting. It's two of us. My friend is Brent Renault. And he's been shot and left behind. His fallen colleague, Brent Renault, was an award-winning filmmaker from Arkansas. He's worked for HBO, NBC, and the New York Times. Mr. Renault was working on a project for Time Studios, focusing on the global refugee crisis at the time of his death. The 50-year-old was reporting the Kyiv suburb when Russian forces fired on the vehicle he was riding in. Ukrainian authorities say Russia has been firing intensively on the region in recent days. Hours after Renault was shot, the mayor of Irpin announced that journalists would be denied access to the city. The U.S. State Department said it would not comment on Renault's death out of respect for his family, but is providing them with consular assistance. State Department spokesman Ned Price on Twitter condemned the attacks. 
Energy officials in Kyiv say Ukraine has resumed the power supply to the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Russian forces had seized the plant in February. Repair personnel reportedly restored a broken power line at the site. It means external electricity supplies to the plant can now resume. Ukraine's energy minister says the power restoration averts the risk of a possible nuclear catastrophe that would threaten all of Europe. But Russia said last week that the site was operating as normal. It said both Russian and Ukrainian specialists were jointly controlling the situation. The power supply to the Chernobyl nuclear plant is used to keep nuclear fuel that has been used up cool. The process prevents radiation leaks. Russia captured Chernobyl just days after invading Ukraine on February 24th. The International Atomic Energy Agency has said there was no critical impact on safety, even though Ukrainian officials warned about potential radiation leaks. A nuclear accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in 1986 killed hundreds and spread a radioactive cloud west across Europe. Ukraine's vice prime minister is calling out a Chinese company that offers cross-border transactions. He is urging China's state-owned union pay to align with global sanctions and cut ties with Russia. Here's what the vice PM posted on Chinese social media on Saturday. Russian money is bloody. It helps Russian missiles attack dwelling houses, kindergartens, and hospitals in Ukraine and kill civilians. Specifically, the minister is calling out Union Pay's subsidiary, Union Pay International, to suspend services in Russia. Union Pay is basically a workaround for Russians to use credit services, those that Visa, MasterCard, and American Express have cut off. The minister wrote to Union Pay's CEO on March 8th, pressing them to stop doing business with Russia until it stopped attacking Ukraine. Speaking of China, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan plans to meet with China's top diplomat in Rome today. Here, he tells CNN that officials believe China was aware President Putin was planning something before he invaded. Uh, we also are watching closely to see the extent to which China actually does provide uh, any form of support, uh, material support or economic support uh, to Russia. It is a concern of ours, uh, and we have communicated to Beijing that we will not stand by and allow any country uh, to compensate Russia for its losses from the economic sanctions. At the meeting in Rome, Sullivan is expected to warn China that the country could face global isolation if it continues to support Russia. As far as U.S. involvement, Sullivan reiterated that there are no American forces operating in Ukraine and that there will not be any. But he added that U.S. troops will protect NATO territory and support Ukraine. We're here to stay in touch with all the key players, as you mentioned, the French, the Germans, the Israelis, others, uh, but ultimately to support the Ukrainians. And as things stand right now, Vladimir Putin does not look like he is prepared to stop the onslaught. And so uh, we will continue to escalate the pressure against him and continue to support the Ukrainians as they fight to defend their territory. Sullivan says he's confident the U.S. and NATO will be able to ship a lot of weapons to Ukraine to ensure the war is a strategic failure for President Putin. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will speak directly to U.S. Congress members. That's according to a letter sent to House and Senate members from Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. It comes amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine and as Ukraine continues to press President Biden for more assistance as it fights back. In their letter, Pelosi and Schumer reaffirmed support for Ukraine. 
Zelensky is scheduled to give a virtual address to Congress on Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern. A bus carrying around 50 Ukrainians left the road and overturned in Italy on Sunday. Police say the crash left one woman dead and several injured. The accident occurred at dawn on the highway between Cesena and Rimini on the northeastern coast. Pictures released by the interior minister show the bus overturned and a crane lifting up the vehicle. The minister says the bus was coming from Ukraine and was heading to the city of Pescara. Police say the passengers were mostly women and children. They are believed to have been fleeing the country after Russia's invasion. The ongoing tensions between the U.S. and Russia over Moscow's invasion of Ukraine does not extend to outer space. NASA astronaut Mark Vandehei will return to Earth from the International Space Station on Russia's Soyuz spacecraft. That's according to TASS, the Russian state-run news outlet. The announcement comes after the head of Russia's space agency made numerous social media posts that appeared to threaten that Vandehei would be stranded in space. For its part, NASA says it has a healthy relationship with Russian space officials and stays neutral on geopolitical issues. Vandehei, who landed on the ISS last April, is scheduled to come back on March 30th. Australia and the Netherlands say they've begun joint legal action against Russia at the United Nations. This is in connection to the downing of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 eight years ago. The Boeing 777 was flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur in July 2014. That's when it was hit while flying above a rebel-held area of eastern Ukraine. International investigators and prosecutors say the plane was struck by a Russian-made surface-to-air missile. All 298 people on board were killed. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison says that taking the matter to the UN's International Civil Aviation Organization would be a step forward in the fight for victims, a view echoed by Foreign Minister Maurice Payne. This is an important step in the fight for truth, justice and accountability for all of the victims of MH17, including the 38 who called Australia home. Russia has to date refused to acknowledge and take responsibility for its clear role in this horrific incident. Australia says it is seeking full reparations from Russia and the suspension of its voting power in the ICAO, which sets standards for civil air travel. The Dutch government says the UN Security Council had also been informed of this step. The Dutch foreign minister said in a statement, quote, the death of 298 civilians, including 196 Dutch, cannot and should not remain without consequences. There was no immediate comment from Russia's foreign ministry. A verdict in a separate Dutch murder trial involving three Russians and a Ukrainian who remain at large is expected later this year. Still to come, Pennsylvania celebrated the state's Founders' Day. Visitors stepped back in time to the 17th century at the Founders' colonial estate. Chicago paints its waters green for St. Patrick's Day. Revelers, young and old, came out to see 50 pounds of dye get dumped into the Chicago River. Find out more in just a moment.
A man is wanted after video shows him stabbing two employees at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. The man was denied entry before jumping into an employee area with a knife. Warning, this video contains material that some viewers may find disturbing due to the graphic nature. Video shows the man entering the museum lobby through a revolving door. He then leaps over a reception desk and corners employees. He repeatedly stabs them. Police say he was denied entrance and his membership was canceled because of previous incidents of disorderly conduct. The tragedy unfolded at around 4 p.m. on Saturday. The suspect stabbed a 24-year-old woman and a 24-year-old man multiple times. Both were taken to a hospital but are expected to survive. The suspect is identified as 60-year-old Gary Cabana. He is believed to be wanted to attend a movie screening at the museum. NYPD Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence and Counterterrorism says Cabana was wanted in connection with two other incidents before Saturday's stabbing. Authorities need your help to find a man they say is targeting the homeless in New York City and Washington, D.C. The suspect seen here in these surveillance videos Police believe he shot five homeless men in recent days, killing two of them. The the shootings took place over a nine-day period. Most of the victims were sleeping when they were shot. The New York Police Department, Washington Metropolitan Police Department, and the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives are working together on the investigation. Authorities are offering a total reward of $55,000 for information leading to an arrest. Pennsylvania just celebrated the state's Founders Day at a historically recreated manor house. Visitors traveled back in time and lived an average day back in the 17th century. Let's take a look. Some Pennsylvanians marked this year's Founders Day at Pensbury Manor. It's a recreated 17th century estate sitting on the banks of the Delaware River. The manor was once home to William Penn, founder of Pennsylvania. Back in 1681, Penn received the land as a grant from Charles II, who was then King of England. So William Penn was a Quaker and was being oppressed in England. When he gets his colony, he establishes it not on Quakerism, but on religious toleration. He was actively pamphleting across Europe for the religiously disassociated so that people who had different religions could come and worship as they chose. Because of that, we could think of him as a multiculturalist He was bringing different people from different countries to Pennsylvania. Today, the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission runs the property and the house is open to the public. Visitors can take a tour to see live animals in the barn and also visit the gardens. Inside the estate, they can explore William Penn's living quarters, including the kitchen, dining room and bedrooms. Joyful volunteers also showcase dances from the 1600s to the 1800s. This was the major form of entertainment for people back then, whatever their age or social class. Dancing was very popular. Um, either they, you'd have guests over and you would, you would dance with them, or uh, in the, almost every village had some kind of a tavern that had a dance room upstairs. Even during the Revolutionary War, George Washington's officers always organized dances all the time. Colonial craftsmen also demonstrate traditional weaving, quill calligraphy, and blacksmithing. I'm making nails today. And these little nails, each one takes me a few minutes to make. 
And you can imagine how long it would take to make a barrel of nails and how many barrels of nails it would take to make a, a big plantation like this. So it was very labor intensive back in those days. On top of these, a 17th century joinery stone at Pensbury Manor radiates historical charm. And this would be an example of fine furniture in the 1680s. This is a joint stool. It was made by both the joiners and the turners. The turners had a lathe and could do the decorative legs. Bringing their families and children along, visitors say it's rewarding to take a look into the past and see the sights and sounds from an earlier era. Chicago began its annual St. Patrick's Day tradition. It dyed the city's river green. Revelers were out early to kick off St. Patrick's Day festivities before the holiday parade. Fantastic. Loved it. Nice and bright. Are you excited? She thinks the leprechauns did it. Yes. Did the leprechauns do it? Oh. <laughs> Just like to have be festive and been in the house for a couple of years, wanted to get out and enjoy it. The dying of the river begins early in the morning and takes several hours. It kicks off a day of festivities, including the city's annual St. Patrick's Day parade. Crews poured 50 pounds of dye into the Chicago River using two large boats to spread the dye. Event organizers say the green hue lasts in the river for several days. According to nextcity.org, the Midwest city has been dyeing its river green since 1962. Superstar quarterback Tom Brady is not going to retire after all. He announced his return to the NFL just six weeks after hanging up his cleats. The seven-time Super Bowl winning quarterback said on Sunday he's headed back to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This will be his 23rd NFL season. Brady is considered one of the greatest players in the National Football League's history. Brady's decision to retire at the start of February was expected, but his about face has left the sporting world stunned. On Twitter, Brady said, I've realized my place is still on the field and not in the stands. His announcement quickly ended the Buccaneers' search for a starting quarterback. Brady spent 20 seasons with the New England Patriots, winning six Super Bowls before moving to Tampa Bay. While there, he led the Bucs to a championship in his first season with the team. The 44-year-old's decision to retire came after one of the best seasons of his long career. Over 11,000 competitors from the 40 nations lined up to take part in the 52nd Engadine Ski Marathon in Switzerland. The event took place after a two-year break due to pandemic restrictions. Thousands were attracted to Grisone High Valley to conquer the 42-kilometer marathon route. The race is known as the second largest cross-country skiing event in the world. In the men's elite race, Roman Ferger sealed his fourth win in the competition. This after placing 11th in the 50-kilometer race at the Beijing Olympics. He crossed the line ahead of Swiss countryman Dario Colonia and France's Tom Mancini placed third. On the women's side, local Nadia Colleen from St. Moritz was a surprise winner. The 20-year-old clinched victory ahead of France's pair Celine Chopard and Honora Latulier. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, Kevin Hogan. NTD News, New York City.